David Crip Hutchins podcast. Um, my name is Elise Debia and I'm based here at David Crip Projects Cape Town at the Montebello Design Centre. And today we're talking to artist John Bauer. John, welcome. Thank you very much and welcome to all our listeners. And just to give you guys some context about kind of how we know John is that he's, his studio and his store is right opposite us. So we get to interact with John almost on a daily basis, which is great. <laughs> um, but let's start off, John. Um, can you tell us a bit about your ceramic and pottery journey? Kind of where did it begin and where did the passion start? So um, passion creeps up on you. you. You start as a beginner. And I think the more, the better you are at something, the more passionate you become about it and um, I was very lucky I received a few acknowledgements quite early on in in my experience with clay so the first piece of clay that I made the extramural teacher took my father aside and said no he's got a special talent get him into a clay environment and so the next big milestone was when I was 16 and I was accepted onto a juried show, which it was an adult competition. And the next time was when I was 30 and a museum bought a collection of my work. And uh, well, just before I was 30. Mm. And so that's quite an amazing thing. It, it really blew my mind. Um, and, and turned my passion into an almost ecclesiastical vigor for ceramics. Well, that's so exciting, but it's wonderful that you you got that support from your school, like your teacher and your schooling system to recognize this. Well, this was extramurally, oh, so okay. it wasn't within the schooling system. Um, I was lucky that I was darn atrocious um, <laughs> at almost everything within the schooling system. Yeah. <laughs> and um, people say, oh, Oh, the school is terrible and missed your genius. <laughs> and I think school is fantastic. Um, it created a scenario where I went out of that environment and found it myself. Mm. Um, and if I look at people who actually kind of have studied, very often there is the the limitations of the teacher and the wounds of the teacher are passed on to the students. And that's tragic. Yes. And I think that exiting the schooling system and opening my own school was the most liberating thing I could do because as, uh, as then suddenly the figurehead, the teacher, just with a gung-ho attitude of like, Charge! You know, <laughs> forward march! Yeah. We're all going to do this. And, and, and uh, you know, the youthful um, uh, folly of following your dream. And the, the, the thing about life is that, you know, most people fail at whatever they do. So you may as well follow your dream and fail than just ordinarily I fail. On my very first day of Michaelis, mm -hmm. um, I got the most useful piece of information. Because mm -hmm. um, I think there's always like, why go study art? You're never going to find a job. And the lecturer just said, no one can find a job. So you might as well study what you love and do what you love. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, can you tell me a bit more about the school that you opened? So I, I was very lucky. I did a deal with Mowbray Teachers Training College. And essentially they had an unused ceramic studio that was just mothballed. And I, in exchange for teaching the student teachers a certain number of hours, could use it for my own purposes. And that was wonderful. You know, I, I was a kid. I placed an advert in the Tatler newspaper, got a few students. Immediately I was, you know, authenticated through a, a, a very simple process of people expected me to be the teacher and I therefore was the teacher. You just um, had to take on that role. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it was a, it was a beautiful role because also, you know, with the education system, it, it, it works in, in one of two ways. Either you give people money to educate you or you can take people's money and they will educate you. As the yeah. teacher, I believe you learn so much faster and you learn so much more mm -hmm. because you're having to have a critical eye um, and you having to problem solve. Suddenly you're responsible for 49 people's problems. Yeah. Not just your own yes. problems. And so that makes a huge difference where you generating solutions for all these people all the time, um, solutions and experiments. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I must admit that not every solution works and therefore it falls into the experimental zone. And I think that's something that I've always admired about your artistic practice is that you're not afraid to just experiment and if it fails then you've at least learned something from that process. So I think that must have kind of started your outlook on that. You might as well try and experiment and see how it goes. I always say if it does what you expect it to do, then you've learned nothing, you've wasted your time and you've, you've essentially taken a step backwards. If it does something else, it's either good or bad. Yeah. Um, and then it's merely that, that, that voting process of saying, mm -hmm. how good is it or how bad is it? And conquering the ego, because it's your ego that rebels and screams, no, this didn't happen the way I wanted it. Mm -hmm. And it's the I, that, that forceful, powerful I, that somehow um, society teaches us all how important we are and it's about letting that go and, and saying, well, objectively, this is good. And you only develop that after a number of years of practice because when you look at your failures five years later, a lot of those failures are your greatest successes. Yeah. And, and then you realize that the I is actually destroying your career, yeah. <laughs> not, you know. It's holding you back more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and through kind of your focus, you went from your schooling system and then opening up the school, did you have any mentors, other kind of people working with Clay that you sort of looked up to or admired, kind of took a bit of um, tips from, in a sense? So... Absolutely. I mean, everyone is a mentor. From the lady that you see at pick and pay 
taking the breadcrumbs out of the bread slicing machine because she has no money for food. Mm. Not necessarily a mentor worth aspiring to emulate. And I think that the art world and the ceramics world are deeply wounded spaces. Yes. And the wounds are coached into the next generation. Mm. And the pain is, is handed on. And this isn't only in the art world. You see it happening a lot in the world of botany, where the identification of new species is uh, so coded and typed and formulaic. And then you have a genius who comes along and says, well, I'm, you know, I know a, a botanist, his name is David Gwynne Evans. And he says, I'm, I'm going to call this Bung Julio. And, and the guy says, well, why? And he says, well, because in Beavis and Butthead, they, they refer to a, a line where he says, uh, give me TP for my bunghole, bunghulio. <laughs> and because its leaf is like toilet paper, I'm going to call it bunghulio. And the person says, but that's ridiculous, David. You can't do that. <laughs> they kind of want, there's, I think, within those, kind of all those industries, of, they want to stick to that system and that kind of formulated way of working. Well, it's generally, it's generally accepted you'll name it after your wife. <laughs> when you discover, you know, um, or you'll name it after your greatest mentor, or, you know, the, the, there are not a lot of popular culture references. We do not have the Mickey Mouse Rose or the Daffy Duck Daisy. Yes. Um, but why? It's a bunch of people who are essentially obeying a tradition, they've been beaten down. They've been humiliated within the group to the point where they conform. Mm. And conforming, they then make other people conform. And so I received a lot of criticism from other parties as to why my bowls don't have a foot. Yes. And unfortunately, they're so emotionally involved in the foot. And they can't hear the reason, and, and it's a very simple reason, that feet were critical in an age 2,000 years ago when a bowl was fired in a wood-fired kiln. Mm. And it needed to be raised so that the heat can circulate and that the, the bowl stands the best possible chance of surviving in a ethereal, dangerous, fuel-burning situation. Whereas today we, we use computerized kilns that have fuzzy logic, yeah. you know. Even, even, even if there's a failure, the computer rethinks it all and continues and takes you to your goal. And so there's no need because the firings are so perfect. Yeah. And so when you say, are there mentors within the ceramic community? I would say that there's a, a great deal of negative mentorship. People are following the Bernard Leach tradition. And I'm very critical. I mean, I love what he achieved, and I love the fact that he took studio ceramics to a new high. Yes. But 
he did it very selfishly because he was the most famous of all potters and he managed to convince all of them that it was a faux pas to put your name on your work. Okay. And that destroyed everyone else's career because the moment you put your name on your work, you aren't being humble. And once that happens, then you automatically out. You haven't conformed your names on the work and you are not part of the good group. Yes. And I don't know. I just, if I could get a time machine <laughs> and go back and beg that man, Bernard Leach, and say, it's a beautiful philosophy, Bernard. It's truly wonderful. And I feel it. I truly feel it in my heart. But the negative impact that this will have on future generations is so dangerous. You are, you are unleashing something that will be the greatest curse within the ceramics world. And I think it's, we see that in all industries. I mean, the fact that it's following this tradition and but I think that's, once again, something I admire about your work is that you're constantly trying to just, you're on your own path. You're trying to create your own things, not necessarily at all too worried about what this person is trying to follow tradition-wise or like that, but just doing, experimenting and doing and being quite unique in how you approach it, which I really quite admire. And Thank that you. kind of leads me into my next question, like how do you approach your creativity? Because the things that you make is so vast, even though you're working with one simple medium. Simple is not the right word, but you're working with a singular medium and you really spread it across. Kind of how do you approach your creativity? Is it something that just happens very organically? So I believe the highest plane that we can progress to in life is to be a philanthropist. And so, essentially, I look at it from the perspective of, can I create something that will create jobs? Can I create something that will create wealth? Can I create something that will create emotional healing? Can I create something that will create beauty? And so, moving forward, it's a very interesting headspace to be in because once you've made enough work to satisfy the I, then it becomes how can I increase the impact of healing? So I write little stories on my bowls and I challenge people, you know, one of the things that used to bother me so much was stories of office romances where people would be in love with one another for 15 years. Yeah. And they would always have such feelings of butterflies in their tummy and, and their whole existence would be orbiting but never actually coming together because both of them felt so insecure, both of them felt so inferior of the other one that neither could ever admit how they felt about each other. I had heard so many of these stories and I thought, I'm just going to make a bowl 
that tells that story so that when one of those people comes upon this ball, they could buy it as a gift for the other. And I could narrate that bridge for them. And so all of my work is in some sense attempting to enable people to be set free. I really like that it's because with all the balls and the tiles and things like that, what I've always noticed that they always start a conversation. Mm. It's never just an object. Mm. Um, and so just now speaking about your balls and your ceramics, and what is in the meaning of some of the found objects within them? Because then I mean, you have the coins, you have the lace. Um, kind of so the found objects, they... The starting point of that is when my mother died when I was five, my father went through a somewhat of a annihilation where we went from having a very full and, and busy house to having a very empty space. Uh, and my father actually now lives as a total minimalist. Um, And later in high school, guests would visit and say, were you burgled? I would say, no. I'd say, well, are you still moving in? No. And they just couldn't believe that there was just no stuff. and when you, when you have that as your starting point, I think there is an overcompensation of when you discover amazing craftsmanship on a small scale. So I love the craftsmanship of a coin. You know, the amount of hours that have gone in to create that ship on the coin. Unbelievable. Uh, Netsuke, the way that those figures are carved, there's just perfection there. And there's, I get lost in these objects. Um, a seashell, a, a key, you know, just the most ordinary objects, but somehow there's something that happens emotionally in me when I see a piece of detail that just sings. And somehow other people, they don't... I don't know why I have that direct emotional response. Um, because other people don't seem to have that. Once I've taken all the sort of dendritus of objects and and taken little molds and created all these little tiles and I present it all as white, somehow then people can see what I have seen and they go, oh, this is a fantastic artwork. (laughs) And I'm like, not really. I'm just trying to help you see the world through my eyes. And yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, I can definitely see that come through in your work. I mean, just seeing the tiles, how it all comes together. 
I think maybe creative people are more inclined to see the small details and very sometimes when they like say a key, if you just actually sit and stare at a key and all the lines and the grooves, it's quite a beautiful object to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe it's just kind of the pace of our daily lives and we don't necessarily pay attention to that, but when we then look at it in an artwork form, mm-hmm. we start to pay attention to those lines, those small details. I think when you say pace of our daily life, I think I think that's the main difference between how I'm existing and how other people exist. So for me, people are incredibly important. The experience of just stopping and sharing time. So for me, I think I learn mainly from people. Uh, I'm not I'm not a very visually learning person. I learn through conversation through my ears. And so people are incredibly valuable to me. And I think that the best things that you learn are the unexpected things. Because if you're only learning what you expect to learn, are you really learning at all? And so to be able to have one's view radically altered is, is a huge privilege. The pace of life, when, when I left school and I had to decide what I, what I wanted to do, um, and there was all this pressure, like, do something important. Um, and my sister's an actuarial scientist, and her friends were all actuarial scientists, and I mean, this is the highest earning profession after being an astronaut. And so they're all very successful, very clever, very everything. But they were miserable. And I said, well, you know, what's, what's upsetting you? Oh, you know, like, traffic. Like, by golly gosh, yeah, (laughs) traffic. And there are universal things that upset everyone, no matter how hard you work or how... No matter the profession. No, yeah, no matter the profession. I wasn't going to say no matter how little you work, because if you don't work very much, then you don't have traffic. Yeah. Um, Because you're you're not going to work. Um, But I started trying to develop essentially a shopping list of things that universally upset people. And these things I would avoid in my future existence. And then things that universally please people. And these things I would try and include as much in my future existence. And I think that pace, I've never heard anybody saying, you know, I just love being so busy all the time and having no time to do anything meaningful because I'm just living this high-paced life. So, 
yeah it's a it's a it's a dream if you have the opportunity to completely sculpt your existence and I suppose I foolishly thought I had that opportunity yeah. whether I truly <laughs> had that opportunity uh, jewelry's out but you know you you have a responsibility in life if you have the option to create something utopic then you have the responsibility to either use that opportunity or to pass it on yeah. and I, yeah I, I just think that people aren't being aware there are so many people with so many options and they don't see any of the options mm. and so many people I speak to who are miserable I love speaking to miserable people because after a few minutes I think these people are miserable for no real reason they are only miserable because they can't see the beauty in their lives yes. and they can't see the wonder that is surrounding them and it's a it's a mindset and it's amazing how many people just need a you know a tall deep-voiced yeah. dark-haired man <laughs> to just listen to their story and shake the head and go your life's perfect this 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 is this and they have never seen uh, we live in a world where no one is ever listened to mm. we live in a world where people are just broadcasting no one's listening everyone everyone's just broadcasting 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 and and it's it's there's the strange reality where if you start listening to people and start thinking about what people say it's it's amazing um the world is entirely messed up because of a misperception in people's heads I think you start to, I think, like you're saying again, like that importance for you to create that connection with people. And it's through that listening and through that storytelling that there is an actual connection. Mm. It's not just listening to the broadcast, but having a conversation with someone. And I think pinpointing the actual inner miserable lives, that these are the wonderful things. So they just need someone to show them a perspective that they just haven't seen before. Mm. I'll tell you a great story. A friend of mine wanted to commit suicide. And so I said to her, how long have you wanted to commit suicide for? And she said, since I was a student. So I said, golly, that's more than half of your life. That's not just a fleeting thought. That's a lifelong dream. And you should have that opportunity. Like, I don't agree with your dream. But you should have that opportunity, and I'm going to help you. And if there's a, a way where I could um, use your ashes in a glaze, that'd be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, everyone else had responded to her with, oh, have another beer, have another glass of wine. No one had ever truly listened, and definitely no one had ever encouraged her. Yes. And no one had ever said, actually, let me encourage you, and let me turn you into an artwork after your death. And suddenly, instead of there being 
a pressure from the one direction, there was a pressure from, from the, the other direction. And she woke up. Every time I saw her, I said, how's your suicide plan going? And she said, I'm just doing this, I'm just doing that. Her whole life had been on hold. She was trapped in this suicidal want. And then just seeing that in other perspective just completely altered her mindset. Well, in preparing for, for suicide. So she started preparing for it. In preparing for it, she discovered how wonderful life was. That's so lovely. And so sometimes you have to let go of your value system and truly listen deeply to somebody else as to where they are at. Mm. And it, it, it was the most remarkable thing. She found love. She got out of debt. Her whole life. It's completely changed. Completely. She's a new person. Oh, that's phenomenal. And I think it's, I think I'm thinking if it links into kind of many questions that you, you managed to find all these wonderful emotional connections to people. Um, and I think in a way that the way that you've also dug in terms of emotions and things like that is the dictionary that you built. Can you tell us a little bit about the dictionary? So I think that I wrote an emotional dictionary to help people understand emotion because emotion, it's just an opinion. Your happiness and their happiness is not the same thing. And so, when you learn another language, you start feeling different emotions because you suddenly have new definitions. And it's wonderful if we can create a new emotional language within our own language. And if we can truly share amongst ourselves when last did you discuss with somebody what is the meaning of the word happy? I don't think I've ever discussed with anyone the meaning yeah. of the word happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, maybe, maybe when you were five. Yeah. And, and so we've left, we've left the most valuable stuff behind in our childhood. And... I'm trying to help people rediscover and say, well, what does it mean to feel this? I mean, my one definition, loneliness. Loneliness will eat your face. And that's the thing. You observe lonely people. They've stopped interacting. They've actually lost the muscle tone in their face. They can't express themselves through this fantastic sort of window of the soul, the, 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 the eyes are the window of the soul, but the, but the face are the sort of shutters of the yes. soul, maybe. And, and so it's a wonderful thing to... I'm trying to do something correctative. I'm trying to reach out to society. And I think everything that I'm doing is trying to alleviate people's suffering. And I believe that everyone is in a state of deep suffering. And those who are aggressive in this world are those who are deepest in a state of suffering and trying to mask it. And so how you reach out is, is 
is how you bless this world and how you create connection. And like, how did you, which words did you kind of select? Was it just like a set kind of thing for just emotive words, like happiness, loneliness, sadness? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's all the emotions. And basically, I'm somebody that I struggle with task tracking. So I'm highly creative, but possibly highly creative because I lack middle term memory. And so when I embark on a project, I make sure that there's certain kind of golden threads that are laid that are going to keep me on course. And usually that's through working with other people who then go, no, John, you, you've got horribly off course here. You started a dictionary, but now you're writing a novel. You know, yeah. like it's, you, you're not doing what you've set out to achieve. Um, and so to, to focus me on this writing task, I hired a typist. It was very difficult yeah. to get distracted when you have a typist typing and um, helps you continue that um, thread. thread yeah because they 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 are the expectation you know they're sitting there and they expect you to say something brilliant um, and that's the wonderful thing is that I find I am definitely better in everything when there is an expectation um, I translate how can I say I become I become five times more intelligent when a TV camera is placed on me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pressure to perform <laughs> so yeah so we essentially just sat and it was the morning ritual mm -hmm. so every day for an hour a typist arrived I dictated for an hour and then she left. Oh, that's great. And I think it's, I think it's once again, you're, you enjoy this working with other people. And have you enjoyed, always enjoying collaborative work, ideas? So I love collaborating. Um, one has to start it with a very kind of clear guideline. One has to understand that a collaboration isn't necessarily going to be a financial success. And I think it's unfair to put a pressure on it from the start. You know, you might get lucky, but most collaborations, and I've spoken to many artists who do collaborate, um, and we kind of have a consensus that it's more about the meeting of souls of the artists and a certain amount of transfer of life philosophy, a certain amount of soft mentoring, a certain amount of exploring the mind of another artist when their guard is down. You know, when you're sitting there with a with an implement in your hand making a mark, you you relaxed. You you at that space of your best self. And it's the opportunity of two artists to share their best self with one another. And if something comes of it, that's fantastic. But one shouldn't go into it expecting a lot. I think it's what I've always found wonderful about collaborative work is that it's just you get to exchange ideas, different perceptions, different ways of working, different creative outlooks. 
I think that, like you said, sometimes you benefit from that and sometimes you just learn that that just isn't the way of working for you. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's allowing new ideas to generate within that kind of scenario. And kind of one of the aspects of your studio and things like that is that you do share a lot of information. For example, you have your <clears throat> your Airbnb experiences that you mm -hmm. have up, and one of them is the explosive ceramics. And mm. um, do you enjoy giving those types of workshops and engaging with um, the people in that way? I do. I I feel that there's room in the world of ceramics for many more people, and as robots take over the menial jobs, there will be many more people looking for something to do. And we have seen an explosion of people taking up pottery in the last five years. Instagram has made it so easy for people to market their work. It's so visual. They pop it on Instagram and they an overnight success and they, they suddenly have a side career. A few years later, they're doing it full time. And that's amazing. The way the world will change in the next 15 years is so incredibly exciting and I'm hoping that I can influence people into understanding how easy it is to have a meaningful starting point. So it's like when you're learning a language, um, you start with a, with a, a phrase book that you go to that country and you've got that phrase book and you can say, Where's the bus stop? You can find the bus stop. And all too often when learning, people are learning on an ongoing basis, week to week, month to month, year to year. And the student is actually part of the financial support of the teacher. And they'll teach that person for five, 10 or 15 years. And so a lot of the processes in those studios are designed to slow the student down because you don't want the student filling up your studio with too many things. You want there to be room for everyone. And so a lot of the techniques that are taught in the classic pottery classes are techniques of tradition, of considered working, but not commercially sustainable. And so, you know, I teach a technique where you, you take a ball of clay, you roll it in your hand, you put your finger in the top, you put another color clay in the top, and you put a firecracker in that, you light the fuse, and bang, you've got a pot. It's the simplest way of making a pot, which you put a plant in it, and boom, you've made yourself a hundred bucks. And so, I'm trying to open the door of a financially sustainable hobby that could grow into a lucrative hobby, that could grow into a lucrative sideline, that could then develop into maybe even a full-time job. But you have to show people that starting point of where, where do you start making money relatively easily. The other thing I teach is bead making because beads, everyone is your billboard, you know? 
somebody buys your thing, they're walking down the road, five minutes later somebody else sees the thing, goes, where did you get that? And boom, you've got your second customer. In in the world of, of sales, you know, getting somebody from being a non-customer to a customer, that's your main hurdle. Once they're a customer, you'll probably have follow-on business from them for years to come. And so that's, for me, the critical thing is how you show somebody who's never worked with clay before, you show them that if they implement their, their, their creativity and they approach it with a, a, a sense of joy and fun and they put a few hours in, they'll get a few bucks out. Yeah. I think it's, I think maybe there's a lot of things within the art industry, I mean, even the printmaking itself, I think ceramics and pottery, as an outsider, you can look and it seems very daunting. How on earth could I ever approach something like this? How could I ever, where, where do I start? And I think it's wonderful that you give people such a, an easily processable example of how simple it can be. It doesn't have to be this overly complicated thing. And what I like about it is that it further just, um, it shows your line of thinking with it. You don't have to have your traditional hot, smooth edges because these explosive parts that you have are fantastic. Every time you're coming up with something new, they have these beautiful shapes, but they're not going to be your traditional ones. And I think in allowing people to slowly be introduced to it like that in an alternative way, it's so beneficial to them. Mm. It doesn't narrow their thinking of what a pot should be. Mm. How can I make money? It gives them free range to be creative and just be experimenting, which I really like. And it also gives people their own foothold. So if that person then meets another potter and they say, well, how do you make your pots? It's a way that that other potter would never have learned about. And creating new knowledge in an industry is, I think, very important because you've got a whole lot of people holding on to the tradition and it, it's it's a bit of a, a shark tank where you know you 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 everyone's guarding their territory. Every, everyone's kind of like, well, there's only a, a certain amount of water in this pool here. But if you can make that pool bigger and say, well, we we've just invented this. This yeah. is this is new, <laughs> uh, and 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 they're completely non-competing processes. Um, and I love uh, one of my latest breakthroughs is. I've been able to denature porcelain and so get porcelain to behave like glass. So porcelain has no stretch. If you try and stretch it, it just snaps. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's referred to that the porcelain is very short. Um, the Murano glass miliophore, the, the little flowers that appear in the glass, they they make these beautiful designs and until now that's been entirely a glass only process and being able to take that process denature glass denature porcelain so it behaves the same way as molten glass form these miliophore canes 
and then convert it back into something that you work as you would work a regular porcelain. That's very exciting. And that's, again, it's a new beachhead in the world of ceramics. It's never been done before. And so I look at it and say, this is amazing. How do I create community around this? How do I go and give a few workshops at a few ceramic schools, start supplying other students? Because I believe that the country that has the fastest uptake within the ceramics world will sustain itself better psychologically when we have a mass uh, robotification of our lives. People will need to pick up knitting needles and knits. People will feel so useless when robots are doing everything. (laughs) Our self-esteem, if you think we already feel low, our self-esteem... That's how we're going to feel then. (laughs) Yeah, are going to be wiped out unless you can whistle a beautiful melody or play a flute or knit or crochet go back to those just making things with your hands you know these handcrafted objects absolutely Mm -hmm. because we will be fundamentally incompetent in all other fields um no but thanks john and all the questions i have today i think it was just great to hear about your practice and kind of what you do but i do i want listeners they must definitely come and pop by by your studio or come pop by the beadmakers guild and i think as one of us to talk about your ceramics, I think they're ones that you have to see in person to really understand. So thank you so much, John. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, spending more time and working with you guys.